Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session number 300. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 300 you're listening to. Yep. My guest today is Andrew Sheps. Andrew is a mixing and recording engineer, producer, and record label owner based in the United Kingdom. Andrew's worked with a variety of artists, including Green Day, Low Roar, Adele, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Hozier, My Brightest Diamond, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Jay-Z, and Black Sabbath, just to name a few. Andrew returns to help us celebrate number 300. He originally appeared on WCA number nine, and we met up over Zoom where he talked with me from his home in the UK. And I'm very happy to have him back for another great discussion. Andrew Sheps, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to reflect on 300 episodes. The first episode that I published of the podcast, number one, was on September 15th of 2014. So, yeah. (laughs) And this show, if you're listening to it on the day it was, you know, published, came out on September 14th, 2020. So, almost six years to the date, almost. So, here's here's some thoughts. Over the years, I, I think I've definitely gotten better at doing it. I hope I have. Uh, I hope my interviewing skills have improved. I think think my voice has dropped in pitch a bit. And I don't know if that's a a product of getting older or if that's just doing that many podcasts, you kind of develop into that voice. I don't know. If I go back to those early shows, I sound like a little kid. Uh, The journey I've taken along the way has really been tremendous. When I started, I was in a rough spot. Long story short, I'm not in a rough spot anymore and uh, feeling very grateful for what has happened over these years. You know, it just, it, 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 was, it was tough when I started out. I had a lot of questions, made a lot of mistakes. I still have a lot of questions and I'm still making mistakes, but I'm just in a better spot. And the connections that I've made with you all, the listeners over the years, I, I gotta tell you, that's been probably the number one thing that has kept me going. There's been a lot of moments where I thought about stopping this show, where I didn't feel it, wasn't up for it, and I get a a great message from one of you, get into a conversation, or I meet up with one of you for coffee, and I just think to myself, I gotta keep going. People are really enjoying the show, they're getting a lot out of it, I'm getting a lot out of it, and every time I think I'm gonna quit, I think, "Eh, I'm not gonna quit. There's, There's too much enjoyment that comes from it there's too many great connections that come from it so i want to thank you all sincerely for the messages you've sent over the years that's really been outstanding you know one thing that i can't do is i sure as hell cannot forget to thank uh, chuck smith for lending his voice six years ago and cliff truesdale for writing the working class audio theme song and uh also at uh, episode 220 Anne marie plo joined us so i have to thank Anne marie for taking a huge load of work off my plate by editing each interview because a lot of effort goes into getting these shows together and uh, her efforts really help streamline everything. So deeply grateful to uh, all of them. 
One thing that I am actively doing right now, I, I've had a system in place of preserving the shows. I won't go into the details, but one thing that I'm doing now is I'm actively going back show by show, remixing those shows and making sure that they sound their best and that they are properly archived for the future, for a day when I am not here. And storing those in four different locations, a couple couple in the cloud, a couple locally. And uh, that way, should I uh, vacate this earth, somebody uh, hopefully will be able to have access to those shows and uh, repurpose them at some point. Maybe somebody in my family, maybe somebody who takes over the show. I don't know. That seems like not realistic at this moment, but hey, you never know. It's been a crazy year. Who knows what could happen? A little bit of a detour, but in remixing these shows, former WCA guest Jessica Thompson turned me onto this fantastic plugin that has really been instrumental in remixing these shows. I think I'm going to say it right, Zenaptic. Uh, they make a plugin called Unfilter, and I'm still on the 30-day trial here. And I'm using it to uh, basically re-EQ everything in these shows. And what it does is it's an AI plugin and it pulls out uh, resonances and comb filtering and basically bad EQ decisions, honestly, which I, I seriously made in the early in, in the early shows. So just want to I want to give a shout out to those guys and I'll put a link in the show notes. You could check that out and, and you could do like me and do the 30 day trial. Looks like I'll have to buy it though because I'm using it. Anyhow, back to the back to the point. Uh, remixing these shows, going back through them, listening again, and reliving those moments and reabsorbing those lessons has been eye-opening. A lot of great things have happened over these years. The book has come out, the Working Class Audio Journal. I don't know if you've got a copy of that, but that's uh, always on the Working Class Audio website for you to click on a link and buy. But I think at the core of everything here that uh, uh, that has happened with Working Class Audio in 300 episodes is people. I've talked to a, a ton of people, some famous, some not so famous, and everybody I've talked to I've learned something super valuable from, and I hope you have too. And it's helped me grow as a person, as an engineer, and really feel lucky that people allow me to ring them up and ask them a ton of questions. I feel very uh, privileged in that way. So let's continue to learn together. I'll continue the show. Stick with me and uh, let's see how far we can take it. I'm in for another hundred shows if you are. How about that? We'll make that commitment to each other. Let's take a sip of coffee together to seal the deal. Mm. So there it is, 300 episodes come and gone, just like in the blink of an eye, six years of my life. And for those of you that uh, binge the show, Thank you so much. I, you know, I get tired of my own voice and the fact that you listen to so many shows in a row, <laughs> that's got to say something. So uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So there we go. Onward and upward. I'll raise a coffee cup here. Here's to 300 shows. Here's to the next 100. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, 
It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Andrew Sheps here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back. Well, I should say welcome back. Yes. Well, it's been a while. It's been a while. I wasn't in the single digits, I don't think, but it was pretty low down on the list. No, you I... were in the single digits. You I were, was. You okay. Were number nine. Number nine. All right. Last of the single digits. Yeah. January 15th, 2015 is when I put wow. that episode out. Wow. Well, absolutely nothing has happened since then. So nice talking to you. All right. Well, and, uh, we'll talk yeah. later. It's good to see you. Man, I bet a lot's changed. Five years. Well, yeah. Five plus yeah. years. I'm in a different country. I mean, that happened. Yeah. Let's start with that. So you moved to Wales, right? No, no, not Wales, England. Okay. West, near the Welsh border. I think the confusion is that the studio that my gear was at was in Wales. And so everybody liked to think I was in Wales, but I wasn't in Wales. I was about an hour away from the studio. So in England, in Worcestershire, spelled Worcestershire, uh, where they make the sauce, mm -hmm. the Worcestershire sauce is from here, Worcestershire sauce. Yeah, it's where my wife grew up. So we've always loved it here. We spent a lot of time here bringing the kids over to see the grandparents and things and a lot of different circumstances, some good, some not great. It just 
turned out that we were spending a lot of time here and thought, why are we going back exactly? Because our kids were out of the house. Our son had already graduated college. Our daughter was going into her, what turned out to be her third and last year at college. And so neither of them were with us. And we just thought, let's live here for a bit. And it's been awesome. So yeah, we've been here for four and a half years, I think. And if I'm right, did you sell your house to Tony Maserati? I did. Okay, I did. I think that's what he told me. Yeah, there was there was a guy, Justin Herget, who works for Tony, who I had met because Tony turned me on to him. And Justin used to help me out a bunch, really fantastic engineer. And he would help me out when I needed stuff or he could print mixes for me and he'd assist every once in a while when I was doing something bigger. But when we were first coming over here, we were just going to be here for like six months or something like that. We weren't sure we were coming permanently. And so he rented the guest house from us because he could use my studio and just be at the house. And it was a much better arrangement for him. And then when it turned out we were going to be staying, Tony needed a place. Like he was moving out of where he was. And I just said, well, rent the house then, man. It's furnished and it's full of our crap. But, you know, if you want to rent it, why don't you do that? Because it was sitting empty because Justin wasn't in the house. And then he was just there for a few years and loved it. And, you know, he didn't want to keep renting. And so it just worked out. The timing was perfect. He bought the place. He's redone the studio. I've only seen it on like Zoom chat, but it looks much nicer. <laughs> I was, I just put Ikea rugs up on the wall and that was it. I was done, which is all I've done here. So there you go. So it's nice. It's nice that there's a legacy of that because I bought the house from Grover Jackson of Jackson Charvel. Huh. And there were people who were renting the house who were musicians. Like, so there's a little bit of a, a history with the house even. There's a musical lineage there, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, how has this been? How has this adventure in England been for you? Do you get homesick? What do you think about the whole thing so far? I love it. I absolutely love it. I don't get homesick at all. I think we were in LA for 25 years and that's a long time to be somewhere. So I think we were kind of ready to go anyway. We love where we are. It's not in a city, which is huge for us. It's nice to be away from traffic and stuff like that. We love that part of it. Love England anyway. And the thing that's really lucky is that because Debbie grew up here and her family's been in this exact area for hundreds of years, is that we kind of airdropped into a lot of people we already knew. And then we'd go to the pub and people would know her parents or her brother or whatever. So it's as if we've lived here for much longer than we have, which is obviously the really difficult part about moving somewhere, especially when you don't have kids with you, because that's how you meet people, right? You meet the parents of other kids. And so we didn't have any of that. We just went to the pub and started drinking and it's all worked out. <laughs> but yeah, it's been great. I don't regret it at all. I think for me mentally, it's really good to not be in the middle of the music business. I don't want to hear about the work I'm not getting. I don't want to hear about work I'd like to get and who's doing what. And I just hear about the work that's offered to me and that's it. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the entire record business, unless I am talking to somebody who I actually know, instead of constantly being besieged by the, this album's going on and that album's going on and like, oh, I really wish I could do that. And there's none of that stress for me anymore, which is nice. That is yeah, nice. I love it. Yeah. I mean, why be in the middle of all the chaos? and be sweating all the records you're not getting and instead be in a, an environment that's peaceful and accommodating to you and your wife 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people thrive on it, and I think there is something to be said for being visible. I'm sure there are gigs I wasn't even considered for because I haven't seen people in years. You know, it's like whoever you last saw is the person you think of. So I'm sure there's been a little bit of that, but I'm working enough, and I'd already gone in the box to be able to travel more because we were spending time over here and doing the Mix of the Masters seminars and stuff. So there were no logistics to work out. It was just like, well, where am I going to hook up my speakers? And when I first got here, it was in a caravan up at the farm where my mother-in-law was living still. And that got pretty fucking cold in the winter, but otherwise <laughs> it was great. You know, and then we got a little rental place and I still left the speakers up at the farm because we were just down at the end of the lane. So I'd work in headphones at home and then go up and check stuff on speakers. And I don't know, there's something I like about it being kind of that casual and not being so professional in a way. Like I've always kind of liked that DIY vibe thing about it. And this is just the epitome of that. It works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. Do you think that there's something to be said for being not inaccessible, but kind of being, I don't, I don't know what the word is. It, man, if you think it's like, like playing hard to get, <laughs> it's just, no, I don't think it's worked in my favor to be out here doing nothing. I mean, I think what's helped is actually staying visible, doing things like this and doing all the videos I do and now doing that interview series I've been doing since the lockdown started. I think staying visible has actually helped, but what's nice is that I can just pull my head into my shell and disappear. And the real difference for me is that if I go to the pub and I'm hanging out with people, they don't care what I do. And if they find out what I do, they're like, oh, so you don't work. <laughs> Because these people take down trees all day or like whatever. They're doing jobs. They're doing working class things. They're do Yeah, they're doing stuff that their neighbors need them to do because someone's got to do them because otherwise people die in a way. Like if you have no wood and you've got a back boiler in your wood burning stove that does your hot water, then you'll die. Like you got to have hot water and heat in the winter. So it's good because it just keeps you with a good perspective on what we do for a living. I mean, I love what I do, and I think music is super important to being a human being. Mm -hmm. I'm not in any way kind of downgrading what it is, but we're not saving lives. Like, no one ever died because the record didn't come out. People got upset. Mm -hmm. I mean, Metallica fans get super angry every time a Metallica <laughs> record comes out. It's, it's just, I mean, that's part of it because music is so important to people. But anyway, I think I've already said everything I need to say. Do you find that you're doing stuff outside of music as a result of being in the environment that you're living? Definitely. Definitely. I think part of it is being outside of the music industry, so I'm not sort of obsessed by it. But it's also, you're allowed to reinvent yourself. Like, my wife and I, for years, have wanted to do some yoga. And you think, well, LA, there are a million yoga classes. Yeah, but everybody who goes to those classes is already really good. And like, they've got all the kit and it's all that. And meanwhile, we found this amazing yoga teacher out here and just started taking yoga. And there's none of this, like things I would be self-conscious about in LA because I was a certain person there. It's like, oh, well, no, now I'm the middle-aged guy who does yoga. Like, okay, cool. And I'm not like doing it 
I should be doing it a lot more than I am. I only do it when we have a class and stuff, but it's been transformative for things like my back. I've always had a really bad back and it's been great for that. But it's the ability to just say, well, no, I'm the guy who joins uh, an astronomy club because I want to have a telescope. I've always wanted one. And so I got one and I joined a club and go be a geek. It's been great. I'm definitely doing stuff that I wasn't doing in LA. Yeah, just a completely different environment. And how has that changed your headspace? Have you noticed a significant difference? Like, oh, I used to act or be like this, and now it's like this. I'm definitely happier and more easygoing, I think. Oh, that's Squid, by the way. Squid I'm just the, pointing out our cat to squid our, the cat. our audio listeners. Squid the cat. Mole is here somewhere. Yeah, I think for me, again, being where I'm not constantly thinking about work has been just really, really healthy for me. I think I'm a better person for it. Now, as far as the work is concerned, has that diminished? You know what? I don't know because I just, I get the work that I get. I've been really fortunate to do some very cool records while I've been here. I mean, did the Tenari One record here, did the Green Day record here, but I've also been doing more indie stuff, which is cool. I'm sure that the work has diminished because I'm not in the thick of it and I'm not breaking down doors and my manager is not somebody who's constantly in people's faces because I don't want him to be like, I love things to be organic. Like it's great when somebody wants you to work on their record because then you've already cleared that hurdle as opposed to having to get your foot in the door and then muscle your way in. And then there's always like a question about it. I've managed to do some really cool production work while I've been here, whereas I was barely producing anything in LA by the time we left there. So the combination of having Mono Valley, which we'll talk about it at some point, I guess, yeah, because now it's closed. It's gone. But having that for the last four years, where if someone wanted to make a record, I could say, well, great. And we go here and they would have to book a studio, but it's fully residential and catered for a reasonable amount of money and an amazing studio. And so getting to work with Motor Psycho, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, Norwegian band, I mention them all the time. And we went to Mono Valley and made a record. I got to co-produce a record with them a couple years ago. And now I'm just finishing mixing the fourth record I've worked on them with. I think it's four uh -huh. with some live stuff. So things like that have really opened up. And it's also just to keep talking because you can't shut me up. <laughs> There's a very different music scene when you get out of cities that have the music industry in them. They're very much about people just wanting to play. And I thought like, I'm going to be out here and I'm going to just be in a little tiny bubble while I'm working. And then there will be no music industry at all when I leave the house. And it turns out I am surrounded by amazing musicians, like incredible musicians. And then you look at like all the bands that came from around here, like obviously all the Birmingham bands and Black Sabbath and things like that, but Zeppelin around here. I mean, Robert Plant still lives around here. I see him in the pub sometimes. But it's that kind of community where he can go to a pub and people are just like, people play music because they love to play music and everybody isn't just obsessed with, I'm only doing this so I can make a record and that will be the gateway to doing the next thing or whatever. There are a lot of people who aren't really that interested in recording. They just have fun. So it's mm. very healthy and interesting. And I'm sure you see that in smaller cities in the States too. It's not peculiar to here. Okay, that was my next question. Isn't that mentality indicative of England in general? Like there seems to be a percentage of the English population that I have the perception that they are not into self-promotion and tooting their own horn. They're just, they're very humble. 
But you're saying that you think that that exists in the States too. Well, I think so. I think, I mean, look at the music scene in Austin, which obviously now they've got a huge tech industry and things like that, but labels aren't setting up offices there. And there are millions of really good bands, probably because South by Southwest descends on them and then leaves and people like the place. So it's partly to do with the music industry being there for five days a year and just blitzing the place. But yeah, they're just amazing bands there. And you could go back to what happened in Seattle in the 90s. And I, I think that there are more sort of musician band-based scenes when you get away from the industry a little bit. And not that there's anything wrong with the music scene in LA is pretty healthy. There are a ton of great bands that have come out of there. But there are also a lot of bands that I know where we'd be talking about, man, we should make an EP. Like people I knew had gotten together and started writing and formed a band. And then one of them got a gig to go play with somebody else and they're out of there because that was the point of what they were doing. It wasn't like we're going to be a band and do it, which is just a different mindset. But it's a nice, refreshing mindset when it really is about nothing but playing music with each other with no thought of like what might come next. Chad Blake was a point of conversation in our last interview and since he should then, always be a point of conversation. He should be, that I, guy. I had expressed a desire to you to not only do mix with the masters with him, but also interview him. And since that time, I've done both. He lives somewhat nearby you now, isn't that? Correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, nearby in relative terms. It's about an hour and a half to where he is, due west, but that's because the roads are small. In LA, it would take you four hours, but if there was no traffic, it would take you half an hour to get as far as he is. In comparing notes with Chad about his experience moving there and his experience mixing and, and doing audio there. Have you had similar experiences in this or are you finding that your experience has been far different? What's interesting is, and I think we probably talked about this on the first podcast because I was transitioning or had just transitioned into the box at that point, that while I was doing that transition, I mean, obviously Chad's been doing it for a lot longer than I have. And I was going to be seeing him and on the way to his house, I realized I don't need to ask him any questions about it because he's already doing it. So like, there's no point in even talking about, well, how do you do this in the box and how do you do that? Like, just do it because he's doing it and it works. So it can be done. And I think in a way, we don't really talk about that stuff. We talk about all kinds of things. You know, we talk about like how it's going in general, just as like friends would, but I don't know. I think the difference between us though is like I've made a very conscious effort to diversify in a way and to be very visible. I just decided years ago that that was something I should do. And so the plugins and the videos and the seminars and things, and Chad doesn't really, he loves doing the Mix of the Masters seminars, but he doesn't really have any interest in going beyond that too much. So I think for me, it's like if I've got a really slow month mixing, I've just got other stuff I'll do that I still feel like is part of my career. Though, to be fair, and I, I wanted to mention this anyway because it's so awesome, Chrissy Hind did a series of Bob Dylan covers. Hmm. And Chad sort of co-produced and mixed them, but he and the family did videos for them. So if you want to see Buck and Stan and Jackie and where they live and stuff, it's awesome. It's all just sort of filmed around them during lockdown. And they're great versions of the songs and they sound great. But it's a really cool project. And Chad just did it. And Stan, I think, has done most of the video editing, which is amazing. <laughs> but yeah, they've just been shooting videos out there. So I think, I don't know. I mean, but Chad's still doing huge records. Like Chad just did the Green Day record. Like he's You still, both have done Green Day records. I know, which is odd in a way. Is that odd? 
I don't know if it's odd. I thought it was very interesting. First of all, when CLA had been doing the records up to, I guess, what, American Idiot, maybe one past that. I'm not yeah. 100% sure. And then you did one. And then right on the heels of that, Chad did one. Well, I think they just decided to mix things up because they'd done the records with Rob Cavallo since Dookie, I think. Everything after Dookie up through the one that I mixed was... With Rob producing. Yeah, and then either with Chris or Jack Joseph Puig mixed warning. So like there was a little bit of shakeup, but like that was a team for them for a really, really long time. And I think they just decided like the record that I mixed, they self-produced, which was a first for them since Dookie was the last one they had self-produced. And then I think after that, they just decided to to mix it up a little bit. So, mm. you know, Butch Walker did the one that Chad mixed and it's cool to see them just experiment and really, try different why things. Not? Yeah. Well, you mentioned Mono Valley. I, I really would love to ask you about that. So when you moved there, Mono Valley, that's located in Wales, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's just outside Monmouth. It's actually in the village of Rockfield. And it's about three quarters of a mile from Rockfield Studios, which is the very famous residential studio in the country out there. And it's kind of semi-well documented that you took all of your gear and installed it in there. Yep. I mean, it was a working studio beforehand, but mm -hmm. they had an SSL that, you know, SSLs get old. And that one, it had plasma meters and those are impossible to keep working now and stuff. So there was enough wrong with that desk that it wasn't really a bad idea to think about replacing it. And that was kind of the impetus. But then I just said, well, I'm just going to bring everything and it'll supplement what you've got. But things like, I mean, I had Q systems that were better sounding than the one they had. So I just like blitzed the place with everything. So a weird partnership that I don't even know what the hell you call it, but yeah. And you did some work there and some time passed. And at some point they put the studio up for sale. Yeah. Well, I mean, the studio was up and running forever. Like it never stopped, but obviously the lockdown shut all studios for a while. But even before that, the owner didn't want to run the studio day to day. And they were trying to do it with other people running the studio. But of course the owner's still living. It just, it wasn't really working out where it was going to be the right thing mm -hmm. going forward. So yeah, there was an attempt to sell it, but it just finding a buyer was difficult. You know, finding a buyer for anything is difficult in this economy. And it just didn't make sense. It's the kind of thing where if you already own it and you've owned it for a long time, you can just keep going. But if you think about starting it up new with a new mortgage and stuff, and then you start running the numbers on it, it's tough. So the studio was actually doing well. I mean, they'd had one of the best quarters they'd ever had right before lockdown. A lot of really cool records. I mean, Tom Jones was in there with Ethan Johns and like some great stuff going on. But even with that, you'd have to raise the rates to the point where no one would really book it to try and start it up fresh, I guess. So, I, you know, I didn't want to get involved in that part of it because I quickly realized I couldn't afford to buy it. Because of course that was my first thought, like, oh my God, I got to buy this place. I got to keep it going. And there was just no way I could afford to do it. So as soon as I knew that I couldn't do it, I tried to just stay out of the way and just be like helpful. If someone had bought it and wanted to keep it as a studio, I would be more than happy to keep my gear in there as long as it was a commercial studio and I was happy with how they were going to run it. But it just didn't work out, unfortunately. So yeah, about two months ago, it officially closed and that's it. And my gear is sold and gone and that's it. I put it in a shipping container and off it went. Uh, uh, <laughs> the look on your face. It's an audio podcast, but imagine zoinks written over your face. With yeah. The, the, what, what just happened? What? How did that? Wow, that was fast. Well, look, so 
it's a shit ton of gear. I mean, it's a 40-foot container that's practically full of gear once the consoles are crated up and everything. And I don't use it to mix at all. And so for a little while, when they first said the studio is going to be for sale, I was looking around here and I actually found a really cool building that had been a Masonic temple sort of thing. It wasn't church-like, but it was a cool building, maybe five minutes from here. And I was thinking, well, maybe I could buy that because it was relatively cheap for what it was and I could soundproof it and do it up and then have the gear in there. And I just was thinking like, yeah, but why? Because if I'm mixing, I don't want to use the gear. I'm not going to go there to mix. I love working at home. I love not getting in the car. I love mixing for 20 minutes and getting up and doing something and coming back. And I just knew if I put it in storage, well, first of all, we tried to find another studio, but there just we couldn't find a place where it would work out. And I knew if I put it in storage, that console would just disintegrate. Those things, they've got to be on and powered up and used. And I wasn't going to be able to do that. So floated the idea of selling it and assumed that it would take a really long time and we'd be parting it up. And I might even have to split the console in half and get a center section put into the expansion part of the console. And then someone just showed up and wanted all of it. Private buyer. I'm like, great. Okay. And it was shocking to me and like, oh my God, what have I done? Because I mean, the gear list was just sort of everything. And I was assuming like, I got years to sort this out. Maybe I'll keep the mini Moog and a couple of microphones. And then somebody's like, no, I'm having it all. Like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So now I own this SM7 that I'm talking on. I kept my RCA KU3s because I love those. I wouldn't get rid of them. (laughs) A pair of 1176s, a BA6A, and the BCM10 because that was never at the studio except at the very beginning. That's been at the house for years. And so I thought, well, I'll hold on to that. But that's, so that's it. that's a 10-channel Neve sidecar? Yeah, yeah, 10, 1073. So it's not like I got nothing. Like, it's awesome. Oh, yeah, you got But I nice never stuff. use it here. I've recorded a vocal through it here twice. KU3. Now, this is a KU5A, I think, modeled somewhat like the KU3. No, the KU3, I mean, I could go get them. They're the predecessor to the 44. Right, right. Sometimes people call them the 10,001 because that's written on the side of them. They were built for sound stages. So they've got this weird angled grid on them and they're ribbon, but they've got what they call an acoustic labyrinth, which is all this like horsehair shit on the back that makes them directional. Mm. Because all the lights with fans on them were behind the mic, so it wouldn't work for them to be left open at the back. But they're just, they're the most natural sounding microphones I've ever heard. Mm. I first heard a pair when I did a string date that Al Schmidt was recording. I got, that's how lucky I am. I get to work on a record where Al Schmidt's recording strings and I get to be there. But he was using them and I just was completely blown away with what they sounded like and found a pair. So yeah, I've kept those. Interesting. So... I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast last time. At some point, I've heard you discuss, oh, yeah, I've got all this gear, and sometime that's going to be my retirement plan. So Yeah, well, now I just, I got to invest that money wisely because yeah. it's, it's my retirement plan. Don't you go spend that all in one place, young man. No, no, no. <laughs> like, we, we live out in the country, and there was a field right near us that came up for sale. I'm like, okay, they're not making any more land, so we've bought a field. There you go. But yeah, I mean, it was absolutely my retirement plan. And it's why I was always scared. There's so much amazing new gear, but I never wanted to buy new stuff because it's like, well, what's that going to be worth in five years when nobody wants to hire me ever again, which is what I'm always planning for. 
I mean, and that's what made it such a cool vintage collection. And I think it's why somebody just said, yeah, I'll just take everything. Because, I mean, there's some clunkers in there. There's some cheap piece of crap things that nobody really wants. But the bulk of it, it's pretty cool. Were you scared to sell it all? Of course. I'm scared to do anything. (laughs) And we were bummed out. Like, Debbie and I love those consoles. We love them. They smell great. They sound amazing. They look cool. Like, there's nothing cooler than that. But... I knew that I couldn't put them in storage. And that's really what it came down to. That even if I wanted to spend the money to have them in storage, I would be ruining them. So there was just, there was no choice. And once you're selling the consoles, what's the point in hanging around with Q systems and Atlas boom stands and things when I got nowhere to put those? And you just get to the point where you realize, like, like I wish I'd kept the mini Moog. It was a really good mini Moog, but whatever. Did you also feel a great sense of relief? In a way, but the thing was having the gear down at Mono Valley and the studio was run really well and it was really well maintained and the gear was loved and I got to work on it a bunch, but it sort of took it out of my mind in that way. So I wasn't that worried about the gear, but what I realized was that the stress of owning all that gear was going to come right back on me like a ton of bricks if I pulled it out of the studio and wasn't doing something specific with it. So the idea of trying to pull that thing out of storage in five years just really made me realize I have to sell it now. I wasn't really ready, but there you go. Tone Quake. Let's talk about that. All right. That'll be a short conversation. Well, five years ago, I was like, dude, you're doing a record label? Okay, well, that's that's cool. To be fair, that label, the label is now 10 years old. We just pressed the 10th year anniversary of the first record we put out, but I'd put out an EP before that. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. The first low roar record will be 10 years old next July 4th. Well, I had my timing off then. So what's going on? Cause I went over to the website and it, you know, it said, (laughs) there isn't a website. I know. It was just like, Hey, we're putting everything in all the stores, essentially go to the stores. Basically. I mean, the web, the website problem was because I'm cheap and I wasn't paying for really great web hosting and my site got infected. It was a WordPress site that a friend of mine built for me with the store and everything. And that got infected and the hosting company's response to that, when it's on their servers and I'm keeping all my stuff up to date, it's the only thing I did for my maintenance was I kept my website up to date. Every update, I install it. And their response was, well, we'll sell you a data recovery package for a lot of money. And I just thought, you know what? Fuck that. So I just took the site down because basically my label is Low Roar. It is that artist and that artist only. There's other stuff I've put out that I absolutely love, but Low Roar is the only thing that's really got any traction. And he's got a store and people were buying way more from his store than my store anyway, because I'm a label, so I'm, I'm the man right? So they would always go to the Low Roar store anyway. So I doubt we've lost a single sale not having a Tonequake website. But the label is still going. We just put out his fourth record last year. We put out an EP that he did on his phone during lockdown. And then I overdubbed a bunch of stuff and we put that out. We got a ton of songs into the Death Stranding video game, which was a huge thing for us. I mean, we have 21 songs in that game, which is kind of nuts. Well, Hideo Kojima, the the game designer, heard the record at a record store in Iceland and just like lost his mind about it. And so he was just doing nothing but listening to that music while he was writing the game. And then talked to Ryan, like they actually met at one point. 
He used one of Ryan's songs for the first trailer for the game, which was a big deal. I mean, I'm not a gamer, so I don't follow this stuff, but he's a rock star as far as game design goes. And he used a song off of the second record for the trailer, and our sales went up by like six times overnight. Obviously, they came back down again, but you just realize, like, you could never buy that sort of promotion. And then we got another big bump when the video game came out. And then Sony, because it's a PlayStation game, Sony has actually pressed a triple vinyl soundtrack album to the game. But I think there are only three songs by other people. There's some of the score, which is amazing, like really, really cool. And then there are three songs, and then it's Low Roar. One of the reviews of the game said, this is the best promo video a band could ever get. Do you ever watch reaction videos on YouTube of people listening to music, maybe hearing it for the first time? No, no, I haven't actually watched any of those. I have been crazy, crazy obsessed with it lately. I don't know why. It just, it brings me a certain amount of joy to see somebody flip out over something that like I flipped out over when I'm like watching an Iron Maiden video for the first time. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that when I was 11. And here they are flipping out over it. A lot of those people that do those reaction videos, a common thing that I'm noticing is, is they're saying, oh, I have heard that song. That's in this video game, or that's used by in WWE and this thing. And, and the exposure of music in these other avenues or these other venues seems to be what turns those people onto those songs in the first place. And then they go back to the source. Yeah. And sometimes they never even make it back to the source, but you get what you get. So absolutely. I mean, video games are radio now, as far as I'm concerned. You see numbers that terrestrial radio is still the biggest motivator for sales, but I think that's got to just be in a couple of genres. That's not across the board. There's no way that outside of pop, that radio, radio is not pushing low roar. Like that's just, it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Video games is huge. Interesting. Absolutely huge. I mean, bigger budgets in movies a lot of times now. So you will continue on the low roar tone quake path? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the only path. Whenever there's a project that I'm involved in and they're having trouble finding a place to put it out or whatever, I will always offer my label as a, look, I have a distributor and he does physical as well as digital this guy Skip up at Burnside in Portland. He's amazing. He's such a great guy. He handles hundreds of labels, all but all indie labels and all stuff that he really likes. And he's just the biggest Low Roar fan ever. So dealing with him is amazing. So I can offer, it's not like TuneCore. It's like one step up from that. Skip's great at shopping things to get into catalogs and on playlists. And Low Roar, the last record, we managed to get Spotify and Apple playlist placements, which is a big deal, especially for a new release from a smaller band. So that's what I'll offer. And no one's had to take me up on it. But I think what's good about it is it kind of gives them a little bit of leverage when they go back to the other indie label that's offering them a totally shitty deal. Like I've seen deals where the label will not pay for anything. They won't pay for manufacturing. They won't pay for promotion. They won't pay for anything. They won't pay for... Well, they'll pay for distribution in a way, but of course they charge all that back and they want 60% of the publishing. Like they want to start owning the music, Mm. not just like, oh, well, we cut a 70-30 deal on the sales, which like that would be fair. So sometimes I guess it's just good to say, well, I got this other label that's fine to do a 50-50 split and they'll do all the distribution and it won't cost us a penny. So I haven't had to do it yet, but there've been quite a few conversations with some of the indie artists I've worked with about like, if you want to use it, it's more like Tonequake as a service, but it's low roar. Yeah, the label is low roar. Hmm. If I ever decide to do that, 
I'm going to call you and ask you how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, I do nothing. Like I worked really, really hard at it for the first sort of four or five years, trying desperately to figure out how to do the promotion with a release. And I've tried it every different way I could think of and setting up indie tours and doing all the things I felt I should do. And it never felt like any of it made a difference. And then the video game was random and did more for us than anything else could possibly have done. So I think if you want to be a label, just be a label. (laughs) Just start putting stuff out, and now you're a label. Because that video game designer heard that record in a record store in Iceland, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Japanese dude in Iceland listened to a record in a store full of vinyl. There you go. You just got to get it out. Yeah, I mean, in that record store, actually, they were the Icelandic label for Lower's second record because they just loved him. And this is when Ryan was living in Iceland. He did the first and second record while he was still living in Iceland. And so they felt like a sense of ownership. So they played the record all the time, which is great. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Since I've done this podcast, and I don't know if you've heard any other interviews, but I really have avoided the topic of talking about specific gear and getting into numbers and this and that. But in this rare instance, I would like to demystify for the audience who wonders what exactly is your in-the-box mixing on headphones setup. What headphones are you using? What gear are you using? I got an iMac Pro. My headphones are plugged into my Apollo Twin because it's sitting on the desk and has a really big knob, which I like. It's one of the original Twins. It's not necessarily the best headphone amp, but I actually really like it. I've just gotten really used to it, I guess. And the headphones are the Sony MDR-7506s. Still. Yeah, I've just, I've owned them for absolutely ever. So I know them. And when they wear out, you get them off Amazon the next day for 200 bucks. So like they're still made and they still sound exactly the same as they used to sound. That's it. I mean, that's all I've got. And it's it's just whatever you get used to. 
like I got loop back because when I'm doing these interviews, it lets you patch audio between programs on the Mac. So it makes it really easy to get the right audio into the stream and blah, blah, blah. So I got that. And then I realized like, oh, hey, that's the way I could actually run Pro Tools to anything without having to change the playback engine. I can keep it on the UAD Apollo thing, but I can have it come out of the iMac speakers. And like, that might be fun. And so this last record, I just mixed a record where I actually spent a few days on the iMac speakers because it was like, well, we'll talk about this in a bit. We should talk about Soundflow in a bit, this amazing scripting program for Pro Tools that I've been deep in the rabbit hole. Thank God there's been a lockdown. <laughs> but like while coding, I'm finally, like every other person on the planet, I'm allowed to listen to music while I do something that's considered work. Like, that's incredible because, of course, we can't because we're working on music. So we never get to just listen to music while we do something else. And so rather than turn on my speakers and I don't want to wear headphones, I just I've been listening to Spotify or whatever through the iMac speakers and realizing that a lot of stuff sounds bad. But then every once in a while, some stuff will sound absolutely amazing, even through those speakers. And it just occurred to me, well, what if... I start mixing this record on headphones, which is what I usually do anyway. And then instead of when I think I'm ready to like crank it on the speakers and see what's going on, I put it on the iMac speakers for a couple of days and try and make it all sound great there. And like when I first put it through there, everything sounded dark and muffled and really fucking weird. And I like I'm doing a save as, so who cares? Not on a deadline. And so I tweaked the mixes on those speakers. And then when I got them back in headphones and put them on the Tannoys, it was like, this sounds fucking great hmm. because it was so hard to make it sound good on those speakers. So it, it's like the Oratone thing, but times a thousand. And it was really interesting, like a moderate level, like not, not too quiet, not too loud and crappy speakers. And it was great. And the Tannoys you mentioned, those are those concentric gold Tannoys? It's the ones before the golds, yeah, the SRM okay. 10Bs. But yeah, yeah. So, and I love those speakers, but I don't use them a whole lot. Just, I got neighbors, I got to close the windows when I use them. So yeah, like once a project, definitely I'm using them. But then I've been on the road mixing stuff sometimes where I don't have any speakers and I'm not going to wait till I get home. Like I got to send it out. So I send it out and it's all fine. But yeah, I mean, I love listening to the Tannoys. But in terms of work, you know, there's an argument to be made for shitty speakers. As long as you can find something that sounds good on those speakers that's like been commercially released, if you put on Back in Black, that will sound very punchy on any speaker. So maybe you should be trying to make your stuff sound as good as that on the shitty speakers. I don't know. It was an interesting thing. I don't know I'm, I'm going to keep doing it, but it worked out really well in this instance. But mixing in these Sony headphones has been working for quite some time, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, since probably just before we spoke last time was when I was on them a lot. Because obviously when I'm in my studio at home with the Neve and the speakers, it would never occur to me really to work on headphones. Why would I? But when I'm traveling, it's all I've got. And then when we moved here, I had speakers, but it was a pain in the ass and it was really cold. And I didn't want to be freezing all day. So I like, all right, I'm going to work on this to a point and then I'll go see what's up on the speakers. And like with anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it to the point where now the speakers is more just for fun sometimes. Like I'll put it on the speakers and there's nothing to change. Yeah. Did you mix My Brightest Diamond a million and one in headphones? Yes. And that that record once I went, this is when the speakers were set up in my mother-in-law's house. After she had died, I moved them into the house because it wasn't quite as cold. Uh -huh. And just in like the living room, it didn't sound great in there. But I remember taking that record up once 
And that was one where I hit play up there and was like, holy shit, this sounds really good. I don't think I changed anything. And after about an hour and a half, I just went back to the headphones. There's a song on there called, I think it's called Champagne. This thing is yeah. the fourth song on the album. Audience, you've got to hear this. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to it because it's. I heard this record and I was like, oh my God. And then I found out you mixed it. And that's when I was, that explodes. <laughs> Brain matters everywhere. I love that record. There are very few records that I would say that I've mixed that I think really sound great. That record sounds great. And I don't know, I mean, obviously the tracking is great. The arrangements are impeccable. Her voice is ridiculous. So you're starting off from a really good place. I mean, having Earl Harvin playing drums along with that programming is just incredible. But I think part of that record was that Shara had kind of made the record three times in a way. She'd done it on her own with Earl because that's the way she makes her records and with a couple other collaborators like Joel Shear, some other people played on things. Then she decided she wanted to work with a producer. So she worked with a producer. Then she brought it back. So every session sort of had these three layers of things. Hmm. So I didn't have any rough mixes to work on. I didn't have necessarily even finished arrangements. She just said, look, I'm lost. We'd worked together before just do something. And it freed me up in a way that's really difficult to be freed up in, where you can do anything you want, but you also have a relationship with the artist already, but not to the point where you're trying to deliver what they want. Because like her records are very eclectic. So, and this is by far the danciest thing she's done on a lot of the songs. So there's absolutely no guidepost for it. And I just decided really early on that I wanted everything that was going to be loud to be ridiculously loud. Everything that was going to be punchy to be way too punchy. Anything that was supposed to have low end was going to absolutely swamp the mix and like just weird shit. And she'd left comments in the Pro Tool sessions all over the place. And like one of them on A Million Pearls is the name of the song. The vocal track had a comment that said, do whatever you want with reverbs and effects. My life is in your hands, no pressure. <laughs> I like, but that made me immediately put tons of different effects, like line by line, things are changing. And to the point where then I started editing the vocal comp and chopping breaths off and muting the returns of reverbs. And so on a lot of those songs, I got focused into some weird rabbit hole that came off a comment she'd made, but there's no like sonic path for it. So just do whatever the hell you want. So it's a, it's a really bizarre process. And I love the way that record turned out. And most of that record is just R1. It's what I sent her. Very few changes. And I think I randomly was like, oh, new releases, new releases. Oh, what's this? Oh, this is interesting. Not really the type of music I'm really into normally, but oh, I just kept listening and got all the way through it. I was like, Jesus, who did this? Look it up. <laughs> oh my asshole. God, some asshole <laughs> in England. And I think I wrote you immediately. It was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. This is amazing. And I love that you discovered it organically, not because like I told you, oh, hey, I just mixed this record. That's cool. Like, that's, that's the real test of it. Because if you go in knowing that someone you know has worked on it, you're predisposed to like it. You're, you're going to really try to like it. Mm -hmm. But so to, to come across it blind, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. In fact, I think I even messaged her on Facebook at the time and just said, hey, you don't know me. I'm a friend of Andrew's. This is awesome. Great job. Blah, blah, blah. She's such a talent. Such a talent. I want to talk about long-term survival and <laughs> like, you know, plague 
yeah. type survival? Yeah, okay. actually, we just had a, a case of the plague show up somewhere here in Northern California. So, you know, anything's possible. The actual these days. plague. The actual yeah. plague. Has it been working out financially? Are you comfortable? Do you feel like, oh my God, I, I just got to hustle and hustle and hustle? No, this is part of it. I mentioned it before. I made this very conscious decision to diversify. I realized that I stressed out so much about work, especially while we had kids in college and things like, because that it's an insane amount of money you've got to be coming up with to make that happen. And I decided if at all possible, I wanted to do what my parents did for me was to get me out of college debt free. I didn't want my kids having to take out loans. I took out loans, but I didn't want them to. So that was really stressful. And then I'm sure we talked about it on the last podcast. I've had month long droughts many times in my career, like three months with absolutely no work. And so I would panic. And each time that happened, I would do something. So one time that's when I started teaching and I started teaching at UCLA Extension and stuff like that. Another time I went and helped a friend of mine who was doing serious home theater installs and low voltage control of everything. So I did some stuff with him for a while. And then the last time, i that's when I decided I'm really going to focus on the brand of me, like whatever the fuck that means. But it also coincided with being able to do the plugins with Waves, which has been huge to do the seminars. Mix of the Masters, having me come do a seminar was a big turning point just to realize like, yep, I can do that. I can stand in front of people for a week and not bore them to tears. And then that going into the Pure Mix videos. So I've just diversified in enough ways and the label, actually, now, after 10 years, I've finally broken even. I was tens of thousands of dollars in the hole on the label forever. But because of the video game and having fewer products, unfortunately, putting out fewer things means you don't spend $10,000 pressing vinyl, CDs, doing mailings, trying to get reviews, all the promo placements and all that kind of stuff. So the labels has broken even. So now there's a little bit of income for that. So all of that on its own means nothing, but all of it added up has made it so that I don't panic now when I don't have work. Like I can cover my basic expenses as long as I keep at it and I keep making videos and I keep doing seminars, like that stuff will sustain me a bit, which is great. And longtime listeners know this, but since you appeared on episode nine, the trajectory of the whole podcast, I have been preaching diversification like crazy over the years because it's worked for me to survive. Yeah. It's really amazing, too, how one other activity can inform the other activities. And also, if you have any kind of ADD in you at all, it's great because you're like, oh, I'm bored with this for a while. Now I'm going to go work on this. And now I can work on this. Yeah. It's been really great. And I've, I've done it also, like we were talking about earlier, the ability to just do other things. Like we met this couple in a pub and they were playing a board game. And it looked like fun. And we asked them what it was. And they're like, well, we'll show you. And they sat down and played. And it's like they started up a board game group. So every Thursday, it's like, go play board games. And like, that's fun because it really stretches your mind. And being the age I am, you think of board games as like Monopoly and Clue. And there are thousands and thousands of super cool games that have nothing to do with any board game that was out in the 80s. So that was like a real eye-opening thing. But then with that couple, we've actually designed a game. And we're playtesting it this weekend at the virtual UK Games Expo. 
because I programmed it on Vassal, which is this online way to program board games so they can have some rules. So it's not completely up to the user to move every little tiny bit. Like there's some logic in it. So I learned how to, to do that and we built the game. And so, yeah, hopefully this weekend, we're going to have two sessions of having people play our game, which is a virtual pub crawl. Basically, it's a, a weekend long beer festival and you have to collect beer mats and you get points for doing it. But along the way, all kinds of stuff happens and you get too drunk and then you got to go eat to sober up. And <laughs> it's ridiculous. But like that's that's been one of the things I've done. Now, I'm never going to see a penny off that, I don't think. But it's been really fulfilling and really fun and has informed me being able to start programming. And that took me into Soundflow. And so, yeah, these rabbit holes, even if they're not productive specifically on their own, it's always productive to do something else. Always. Okay. Tell me about Soundflow. You got, you've got my interest. All right. Well, so Soundflow, it's basically, you could say it's a scripting program. So like Quick Keys and Keyboard Maestro and all the rest of them, but it goes way, way, way beyond what any of the other programs can do, at least as far as I know. Like I've managed to get Soundflow to do stuff that I could never get any of the other ones to do. So it, has two kind of ways you can program it. One is like a drag and drop macro thing. So there's hundreds and maybe a thousand sort of built in actions that know how to control Pro Tools. So like you want to solo a track, you want to assign a plugin to a certain insert slot on a track. You can drag and drop macros and sort of build up this workflow and you just fill in what the variables would be. But then if you really want to be a geek, you can convert that to a script or start a script from scratch. And you're actually programmed in JavaScript. And Christian, the guy who's developed all this, has just developed hundreds of little tiny code modules that can talk to Pro Tools. So simple things like I always print to a track that's at the very bottom of my session. And I'm printing through it. So I'm in input while I'm working on a mix, but on that track is a rough mix or the previous version of the mix. And so I want to refer to it. And the way to do it is I just switch input on that track. So for years, I've had to scroll to the bottom of the session and hit input. Soundflow lets me swap the input state of that track without the track being on the screen. And I don't know of any other program that can do that. I'm sure someone's going to say, oh, you can do that in this other thing. Like, okay, fine. Maybe you can find one example of stuff you can do. But I have written a ton of scripts and some really complex stuff. Like I don't bounce mixes like hands-on anymore. When I'm ready to print the next version of a mix, I don't even have to set it up. I just hit a button on my stream deck, which is just a controller with a bunch of buttons on it. Hit a button on the stream deck. It increments the playlist number. It selects the region. It bounces the mix. It exports a 44.116, copies it to Dropbox, done. So you just keep building these things up and up and up. And because it's a full-fledged programming language as well, you can do actual error handling. Because if you're doing macros, if something goes wrong, the macro just like, well, okay, I couldn't do that. But I can actually recover from things. If a dialogue comes up, if it's ever come up before, I've seen it, and now I've written code to say, well, if at this point in the process, this dialogue comes up, dismiss it in this way. So now I can actually do unattended things. And simple things. Another cool thing is users can publish 
scripts that they've written and anybody can get them. So when you first get this program, there are definitely thousands of pre-made scripts that people have put together to do stuff. So like I just published two scripts that go together and all they do is help you use Melodyne in Pro Tools because using Melodyne in Pro Tools is great once you've loaded the audio in, but it sucks when you've got 23 tracks of background vocals that all need to get loaded in and you put it off and you put it off and like, I don't want to do it because it's going to suck. It's going to take me an hour and a half. So I've written a script that for all selected tracks moves your plugins to open up slot one, inserts Melodyne, hits the transfer button, goes to the next track, does the same thing, gets all of those Melodynes instantiated with the transfer button active, and then does that hack where when you commit a track and it goes faster than real time while the transfer thing is active, it actually loads the audio faster than real time. So it does that, but then it gets rid of the committed tracks and all the committed audio. So you haven't just messed up your audio files folder and made it twice as big. And then it reopens the first Melodyne ready to tune. And it takes no time at all. Like it's insane to the point where I, I could go out and get a cup of coffee, but I actually enjoy watching it do it. <laughs> It's so much fun watching plugins get dragged around and then everything bounced. And then when you're done tuning, you just select the tracks again, hit a button, and it commits all of them and hides the originals. I mean, that you can kind of do in one swoop now with Pro Tools, but it just, there's nothing like hitting a button and having something happen. And what's, what's the learning curve on this thing? It depends. I mean, part of it depends on how much of a geek you are, but if you just want to program some macros, like if there are repetitive things that you do and you don't want to do them anymore, you want to hit a button and have them done for you, that's actually really quick because generally you'll find built-in functions that will do the pieces of the puzzle. To me, what if you want to do the scripts, you've got to learn JavaScript. And there are a lot of resources out there and you can actually look at all the other scripts people have done. So you can just steal code. There's a really active forum where people ask questions and people help each other out. Like it's a really great community as well. But you do have to learn JavaScript to do the really, really cool stuff. And so that's been a pretty steep learning curve for me, but I was motivated because it's like, holy shit, I can get this thing to bounce my mixes. I'm going to learn this and I'm going to make it happen. But the, the learning curve is that I think people want magic to happen. Uh, I just wanted to print my mix. You have to define what that means. You have to define step by step what it actually means to put Melodyne on the first insert of a track, hit the transfer button, right click the track, say commit, find the track you just committed, delete that audio, delete the track, reopen the plug. Like that's a process. So I think some people have a really hard time defining the process and breaking it down into the steps. But once you can break it down into the steps, you can usually find something that will do each step of it. And all you have to do is a little bit of fiddling in between. So if I have this correct, this is soundflow.org. Yep. And wow, it even says Soundflow Forest here, design your own surfaces for iOS, Android, and Mac OS. Yep, that's the other thing. Okay, so I'll do a little plug for one, a little product I've got coming out soon ah. through Soundflow. Okay. It's not quite done yet, I'm almost done. So for everybody who works on music, you do a mix, right? You've got a session and the song doesn't start at the beginning of the session. It starts at whatever, 38 seconds. Or if you've been tracking, it could start at an hour and a half in. Like it starts somewhere in the middle of the session. But you bounce a mix, you send it to the band and they say, hey, at one minute 30, this thing happens. And oh, what about the vocal line at two minutes and 47 seconds? So now you 
have to figure out by either just making a selection from the beginning of your mix and you roll over and like, okay, well, that's one minute 30. It's a pain in the ass when Mm -hmm. you have to do it 30 times on a mix. So I've written an app that can either open on your screen or on the iPad or Android or whatever that you locate anywhere in the session you hit a button, that's now zero in minutes and seconds. And now you can locate and you see a counter that looks exactly like the Pro Tools counter, but it's offset. You can locate, if you say go to 30 seconds, it takes you 30 seconds past the zero point, not 30 seconds into the thing. And if you really want to be a geek, you can save them. So what I do, there's one version of it that just is like a counter with a couple of buttons, but there's another version with a whole table of them. So when I'm mixing a record, I actually save them the offset point for each song. So when I open up the session, I also just double click the name of the song. And now all those times are lined up and it's fucking awesome. And you think like, well, whatever, you know, I could switch into time code mode and redo the offset. Like there are ways around it. Mm -hmm. But the way to do it is if you could re-zero the minutes and seconds counter in Pro Tools, which you can't do. It's the only counter other than samples that you can't say this is zero. Now you can. You're a deep thinker and you really try to come up with ways to solve problems. And this is a prime example of that. I just hate repetitive work. It drives me nuts. It makes me hate my job. Prepping sessions is mind numbing. So if instead I can have a row of buttons that says, make this stuff this color, make this stuff this color, without having to select the tracks, then go click on the header of the track, then go over to the color picker and hit the thing. Oh, it was still set to clips, change it back to tracks, now click the thing. I've got other ones that just assign the default outputs. I want stuff going to the mix bus, Hmm. fine. I've got one that does nothing but change all the really stupid shit I have to change every single time I open up someone else's session. Like, I want the clip color to follow the track color. Okay. I don't like the extra grids on in the edit window. I want to be showing all of my inserts and all of my sends. So like that you can do in a window configuration, but there are a couple other preferences I like set a certain way. I like my default output to be my mix bus. So I don't make a new track on the fly. It's going to the speakers. I think everything's cool. I print the mix. It's not even in the mix, like all that kind of stuff. Individually, none of those things are a big deal. If you're prepping a 12 song record and you have to do every single one of those things 12 times and then you forget a few of them, it sucks. I open up the session, I hit a button and it whizzes around and just does all of them. Ta-da! <laughs> and you don't have to hire anybody, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but I, I've i been prepping my own sessions always because for me, that's a big part of the learning process of what's in the song. So I kind of like doing it because otherwise I feel like I spend almost as much time figuring stuff out if I have someone else prep it. So I'm fine to do it, but the repetitive parts of it make me want to kill people. So anytime that happens, rather than spend five minutes doing a repetitive thing, I'll spend four hours scripting it so that I never have to do it again. And it's just amazing how many how many times a day that comes up. What do you learn from your peers? And when I say your peers, I'm talking about all the same, you know, cast of characters that we see on Pure Mix, Mix with the Masters. You know, I'm talking about Joe Barisi and Tony Maserati and Chad and you know who I'm talking about, Sylvia and and the usual suspects. What do you learn from them, not just from a technique perspective, but just about doing this? Well, I've got to say, doing the interviews I've been doing since the lockdown started has been absolutely amazing. I'm sure you would say exactly the same thing about having doing your your podcast, being able to talk to so many people about the same thing. So like I've decided the way I structure my interviews is I just want it to be life story. 
if someone wants to talk about what compressor they used on a particular record, well, that's up to them. But I'm just saying, what was it like to work with Led Zeppelin? I'm the dumb idiot. But fortunately, I think there's a little bit to me also doing what they do the same way with you. You can intelligently interview people. And so I'll sort of lead it through it. But it's fascinating to get to just the way people think not only about making records, because that's fascinating too, because everybody sees it really, really differently. Mm -hmm. But to just broaden it out and see their approach to being themselves, like who they are as a person and like how they got into it, not like in the anecdotal way, it's hard to explain really, but it's like you get this incredibly broad insight into what record making means to different people. And it's totally different to different people. Some people feel as though they're saving the planet. Some people are doing it because they hate the way other people do it. So, I mean, it's not this cut and dried, but the differences are extraordinary. Whereas when you talk about like, oh, how'd you do the drums on that? Like, yeah, everybody does different stuff, but it's all the same thing. Right. It's just different versions. And it can be super inspiring and super cool. I mean, especially someone like Sylvia talking about recording through potatoes. We talked about that <laughs> for a good five, 10 minutes straight. And about was she doing it on both conductors of the speaker cable? Because I assumed it would only be on one. She's doing bipolar potatoes, which I had no idea. And does she ever mix pickles and potatoes on each? No. I don't think so, no, but she was also, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out because she goes into the different types of cheese. So she is so unique. Like yeah. that is just Sylvia. Absolutely incredible. But I, I think what's been great for me is to get a sense of the people. Like Jimmy Douglas this week was just incredible. I mean, that guy's done so much, but if you don't talk to him for a long time, you don't necessarily connect the dots. And I think that's what I've loved about it. So what I've been learning in these interviews is just how amazing they are as people and the way they apply that to the making of the records. Before those interviews, I mean, obviously I watch videos all the time of what people are doing, just trying to get a sense of what they do. I think for me, I've finally given up on stopping the video when someone's got something on the screen so I can say, oh, how are they using that? because it never works for me. It never does. I've tried to steal everything from Chad and none of it works for me. It all sounds like total ass because he's he just hears differently. But I've always trying to like, well, okay, how are they listening? Why are they thinking of doing anything at all at this point and trying to get inside of how they listen? And that's what I've, for the last probably 10 years, what I've really been focusing on, I think. Yeah, I've taken a very similar approach with Working Class Audio over the years, and I will never forget being at Mix with the Masters with Chad, and they had the big TVs up so everybody could sit back on the couches and watch, and every time he pulled the plug-in up and then would pull it down, everybody would go, oh, can you put that back up? And he would turn around and go, guys, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to work for you. It works for me, and it works for this mix, but it's not necessarily going to be a preset that is going to work for everybody. And I just was like, yep. Yep. I just, and I know that you do the pure mix thing and there's a ton of great information out there, but personally, I kind of hit a wall with it and I'm just at a point where I'm thinking, aside from this podcast, I'm more interested in the people, their thinking, their mindset, why they make those decisions, the journey they've taken, what can I learn from that? And then when it comes to making records, I'm like, screw this, I'm doing my own thing. I still love it with 
Like I'd say the series that Pure Mix has been doing lately, they do these start to finish series. So it's not someone talking about what they did. They're actually documenting people from pre-production through in the Greg Wells video's case, the mastering stage. Mm -hmm. And that's been great because you really do see, again, how people are thinking and why they're building stuff the way they are. And it's fun when it's a song you like to kind of see the elements of it. Like that's always cool. But yeah, what I'm hoping is by continuing to do those videos, what I feel like is when people have seen enough of them, they get to the point where you're at, where they realize that the specifics don't matter at all. So I spend a lot of time in those videos trying to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing, not what I'm doing. I think the the thing that's very difficult for people to learn and is the most important thing to learn is how to listen and how to work while you're listening. What's important when you hear it, not to be a magpie and get distracted by everything that's shiny, but to be distracted enough by things that are not shiny enough to know you got to go deal with it and how to deal with it. So. I think that part of the process is still good for people to see because hopefully they'll learn a bit of that. But it does take them not just writing down the parameters and hoping that that's all they need to know. And it's difficult because things we take for granted because we've been doing it for years are really alien and difficult for people who are just starting out. Just listening to a kick drum Mm -hmm. and having any idea about what it should do in the song, like what? There was this one week I talked to two or three people and it was like Groundhog Day having the same conversation. All of them said, well, you know, I downloaded Andrew's template and then I ended up mixing it up and making my own thing out of it, which I've done. I've downloaded your template. Like literally three people in the same week telling me the same exact thing, downloading your template. That's funny. (laughs) Look, it's, I think though, There is some value in it, though, still as a teaching tool, only because like if you tell somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing yet and they want to learn, look, just set up a stereo send post fader at zero on every track in the mix. And that makes a copy of your mix. Like first, you've already lost them. And then say, send that to a multi mono compressor so that they're unlinked and then blend that back in. We don't even think about that. We just do that. Mm -hmm. That's easy. That's not easy if you don't understand routing, if you don't really know how the DAW you're working in works, or if you're working in something like Ableton where the kind of signal flow is hidden a little bit on purpose to not let you get bogged down in it. But then if you want to do something traditional, it can be difficult. I think that in a way, there's still some use for it. But yeah, the the questions about like, what's your favorite compressor for this? It's like, those are all unanswerable questions. And every time I've seen you at NAM or AES, I'm walking by, there's a huge crowd, and there's the inevitable one person going, what's the best compressor for kick drum in this particular situation? And as I'm walking by, I'm like, I know how he's going to answer this. And you're like, depends. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I think that probably, and I'm just making this up on the fly here, but probably the best thing anyone who wants to learn anything about doing this could do is to only use the stock plugins of whatever DAW they're using and to only use like a third of them. Mm-hmm. Because that, like, that's one of Chad's things. I don't know if he threw out the challenge at your seminar, but he said he's always saying, look, I'll mix using one EQ plugin, one compressor plugin, and one distortion plugin. And you guys can even pick which ones they are. I don't even care. But that's all I'm going to use. 
you know, multiple instances of them, but I'm using three plugins and no one ever takes them up on it because they want to see him do the crazy shit. But <laughs> like that guy with an EQ3, a Sans amp, and I don't even know what compressor, like it doesn't even matter, the Dyne 3 that comes with Pro Tools, he would still make it sound better than I can. It would still be gigantic and awesome and the best thing ever. And that's what's important. And I think that maybe it's the proliferation of tools and the ease with which people can get them. Because I'm sure, I mean, I'm fortunate I make enough money doing things that I don't even look for cracks. Like, I don't know where you'd even look these days. But, yeah, I you know, no clue. 25 years ago, there were things that I would use for a bit. And I was always conscious of it and tried to buy because I had worked for a manufacturer and seen what happened when things didn't go well for that. So I was always aware of it. But like you do that and you start off. But the problem is you're starting off and you just start hoarding and you've got 1500 compressor plugins. How could you ever learn about compression if you've got 1,500 compressors? The point is to get one and learn the shit out of that. Then when you open up the second one, it's like, whoa, there's a knob that wasn't on my first one. What does that do? And you actually have a knowledge base and you can learn what release time does when you've been working with an LA-2A. Like, yeah. start there. Start with an LA-2A. It's got one knob that affects the compression. You know, your comment about crack plugins and, and trying to hoard and get stuff for free. I think it hit home for me in 1999 when I ran into Colin McDowell at an AES show. And Colin and I went to high school together in southern New Mexico. Oh, right. And when I saw him there and I was like, hey, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I've come up with this company, McDSP. That's when I was like, when you do that, you're affecting people like Colin who are trying to run a company and employ people. And that's when I was like, screw that. I'm not doing that crack plug. Yeah. Thing. And it's real easy because you'd be an idiot not to have a really good looking website. Like you can't look like a one man operation in your basement, but that's what a lot of these plugin companies are. They're one dude, one girl sitting at home coding. And if it wasn't for Juice, which is a, you know, a platform for building plugins, a lot of them wouldn't even be able to do it because they don't have the resources to do the DSP programming from scratch on their own. So yeah, when you crack, it's taking it literally out of their pockets. I mean, look, even the bigger companies though, like people can say, well, yeah, okay, well, what about Waves? Well, what about Waves? When Pace was cracked back in the day, they lost 70% of their revenue overnight, which translated into them firing 70% of their employees a couple of months later. Yeah. So if you think it's like, everyone says it's victimless crime, like it's just copying software, there's no... It ain't victimless, so try not to do it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I do contract work for Universal Audio, and I see who they employ, the level of people they employ, and there's some super smart people over there doing stuff, and I just, like, this affects people's lives when you, when you do that in ways that you don't realize because you're like, oh, that's just a big corporation. Yeah, but big corporations, unless they're really big, are just a few people. It's they're not that big. I know. It's it's a misperception, I think, that some of these companies are just massive and can absorb the loss. Yeah, they can't. They can't. Look, anyway, yeah, there's nobody getting like fabulously wealthy in the audio software industry, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, even, even Avid, when stuff goes south, they have to fire people. Yeah. It, and it's not because they're evil. It's because they don't have just pockets of money hanging around for like, oh yeah, there's a lockdown and nobody's buying software anymore. Like, oh, whatever. Like they've had to furlough people and they've been really good about retaining everybody. But yeah, everybody gets hit. Everybody gets hit. Final question. 
what the hell is going on with you and Greg Wells and all these pictures of you and Fab DuPont he keeps oh posting? Oh my God, he's so funny. I didn't even realize he was doing this. So I don't know when these things are going to come out, but at NAM this year, so the last thing I did before I locked myself in my house, I did a ton of interviews, but we decided to do them kind of like between two ferns sort of thing. Right. But just with me being a total asshole. <laughs> so I'm interviewing people and being a dick, like a real dick. And the only one that we even started editing, because Pure Mix, they're so busy. They've got so much going on. It's just insane how much content they put out. Plus, they've got the plug-in company. Plus, just it's amazing what they do. We've got all of these interviews, but the only one that got put together so anybody could even see it was Greg's. They just decided, like, we'll do that one first. And it's really funny. It's not even done. And it's really funny. But we can't just put one out. But Greg is losing his mind because he wants that one released. So, like, you know, we know it's got to happen. But an editor needs to spend a month editing these things so we can put them out. Because some of them are really, really long. Yeah. I talked to Erica from UA about the meteorite that destroyed the dinosaurs for a long time, like for an uncomfortably long time, because I happen on my phone to have this amazing article from, I think it's from The Atlantic or maybe from The New Yorker about there was someone who discovered something that proved like this was the way it happened. So there's this two page description of the Armageddon on the planet when this thing hit the planet. <laughs> and I basically read it to Erica, who was not enjoying me reading that, but we we're talking about dinosaurs. There was another one I did with Chris Mara, who's such a nice guy, and I'd never met him before. We've emailed a few times, but I've never actually met him. And his wife was there, and I was such a dick, and she didn't know that that's what this was. <laughs> she didn't know that it was a farce, and she hated me. They got out of there and like, okay, we'll see you later, guys. You know, thanks for doing this. It was really nice to meet you. And apparently when they got out of the room, she's like, what is wrong with that guy? Like she was so mad because I was so mean to her husband. Like really, really mean. So it's a joke and they will come out at some point and I'm looking forward to them coming out. But Greg is just losing his mind wanting them to come out right now because his is really good. So he's targeting you and Fab in these posts like on Instagram, I was, it was just like, what is going on? Yeah. And everyone just says, release the interview, but that's, that's what it is. It's the video interview of me being a total asshole to people. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> now I understand. So, and now the audience will understand. Yeah. Which is why I'm glad I've got these other Monday interviews to kind of offset that. Cause I was a little worried like, well, but if people don't know, they'll think I'm actually like that. But now fortunately with the other interviews, hopefully people don't think I'm that much of a dick. <laughs> Well, this has been great. I'm glad we could catch up and uh, you could explain a few things like this interview <laughs> situation. And it's great to have you back. Well, thanks for that, man. Congratulations on 300. I don't know how the hell you do it. I'm on like number 17 and it's already like, how do I keep going? And it's a lot of work. It's a lot, a lot of work. And you're always really well researched and up on things. You've had some amazing guests. So I just a huge shout out to you for keeping this going that long well thank you yeah you've got to listen to chad's interview i feel what what number was he you seem to remember everybody's number 200 i think he was 200 200 okay no then i don't i thought he did. no okay i haven't heard it i will absolutely listen to it yeah number 200 
not only was he just fantastic and he's just such a sweet, sweet human being, but what cracked me up was, is, you know, everybody sends me their audio. Chad sent me whatever dynamic mic he was on, but of course he had to send me the Neumann head recording of it as well. <laughs> so I was like- I'm glad you didn't tell me that at the beginning because I would have been scrambling to try and do something as cool as that because- yeah, it's not and I happen. blended it in a little bit to the interview. You can't even tell, but I just sat and listened to the Neumann head of his voice for a period of time going, wow, wonder if I, what, should, what can I, can I, should I just put this out? <laughs> it, yeah, it was, it was hilarious. Well, uh, look, if the only, if people only take away one thing from today's thing, it's to go watch the Blake family videos for the Chrissy Hine, Bob Dylan covers. And if they take away two things, go check out Soundflow. But those videos are amazing. It's so much fun. And it's it's great to see them just doing their their thing out in the country in Wales. Well, I'm going to have to go check that out now. So I'm going to let you go so we can all go do our things in our little lockdown world. And really great to see you. Thank you so much for coming back. It's It's always a pleasure talking to you. I always learn something new. Thanks, Matt. It was great. Okay, take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Andrew Sheps here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. My sincere thanks for lending me your ears for the last 300 episodes. It's been my true pleasure to bring them to you. I hope you'll continue to stick with me for the next 100. My ask is that you leave a review on iTunes. That really helps the show and lets people know that it's worth listening to. But that's it. Let's wrap it up. I must thank my excellent crew, Anne-Marie Plow for her editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith, that voice. Thank you, Chuck. Stop by workingclassaudio.com, connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.